Friends, it is a joy to see all of you as always, and I trust that you are eager to hear from the Lord because you want to take His Word to heart and glorify Him in all that you do. And so this afternoon, let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's where we are. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 to 24. First Corinthians seven, seventeen to twenty-four. Hear now the word of God. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek to let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Let's pray. Father, help us now to assess our lives through the lens of the cross. Open our eyes to see that in Christ you have dealt bountifully with us. Cause our hearts to be compelled and constrained by His love so that we may live lives worthy of Your calling. May we remember that we are Your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which You prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So fill us now with Your Spirit that we might be rich towards You and abide in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Why do people come here? I don't mean why do people come to this church. I mean why do people come to this country? I think if we could interview a few folks, and if they were honest, they would probably respond like this. I came here to get a better job. I came here to earn more, to acquire a better lifestyle. To have more buying power in my home country. To eventually immigrate to the West. To be viewed as a success story back home. To be treated with respect in my culture. To be seen as that person in my family who made it. Who rose above the rest or, insert Bible filter, who made a name for themselves. 
Friends, the truth is that people come here chasing their dreams, their desires, and they put their hopes in this country, in their assignments, and they make regular sacrifices to the gods of success and money and comfort so that they can change their circumstances and their social standing and move up in life. Upward mobility is the name of the game. Now, Christians are not immune to this sort of thinking, and there was certainly a lot of this kind of thinking going on at the church at Corinth. Paul was concerned that the Corinthians were enamored by the same things that their culture was enamored by. He was troubled that they were chasing after the same things that the world was chasing after. And so he writes to them to tell, to tell them that to be a Christian is to have a mind that is influenced and shaped not by culture, but by the Word of Christ. He reminds and admonishes them that they belong to God. He tells them that the Christian's life is always going to look weak and foolish and ridiculous to the world. Because our values are not of this world. We are not our own, but belong body and soul to Jesus Christ, and therefore it is His Word that ought to inform us about what we ought to esteem and love. Now when we get to chapter 7, we see Paul addressing those who not only had wrong ideas about marriage, but also wanted to change their status. Some people no longer wanted to stay married. They wanted to change their circumstances, but for all the wrong reasons. And this is what Paul tells them in this passage. He says, look, I want you to understand that Jesus Christ is Lord over your lives. You have been redeemed by Him. And so in every situation, married or unmarried, you must first acknowledge Him. Your first thought should not be, how can I change my situation so that I can benefit or make my life better, but how can I acknowledge Jesus' Lordship over my situation so that I can glorify Him? Friends, this is the wisdom of the cross, and it ought to inform and guide the life of every disciple. And so there are three theological truths that every disciple must remember in every situation. Three truths. Number one, remember the precedence of Christ's Lordship. Number two, the priority of Christian obedience. And number three, the power of Christian identity. Three things. Lordship, obedience, identity. So think of it as a, as a, you've all heard of bifocal lenses. Think of this as a trifocal lens through which you ought to see your lives. The precedence of the Lordship of Christ, the priority of Christian obedience, and the power of Christian identity. Let's think about that first point. Look at verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him 
and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So, Paul is not saying something that he wouldn't say in any other church. This is what he instructs every church. And so this is for us as well. He says, only let each person do this. Now, why does he begin with that word, only? Some translations use the word, nevertheless, or but. And that's because of the context. Remember, this is an ongoing discourse. Remember what he has been talking about. He's been talking about marriage and divorce. He says to the Corinthians, if you have an unbelieving spouse and they consent to live with you, you should not divorce them. And then he says this, look at verses 15 and 16. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is out of your hands, he says. This is out of your hands. Your unbelieving spouse wants a divorce. Yes, your marriage is holy because of Christ in you. And yes, your marriage is certainly worth fighting for. But if your unbelieving spouse is unwilling to live with you, let him or let her depart. Remember that only the God of the gospel can save your spouse. And then he says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. In other words, here's what he's saying. He's saying, yes, this has happened. And in this situation, I want you to keep this in mind. Let each person lead the life. What does that mean? It means to live in a particular way. This is talking about your conduct. Let each person lead the life that the Lord, that's Jesus, lead the life that the Lord has assigned him. He's saying, I want you to remember that Christ is Lord over your situation. This is your lot. This has been assigned to you. These circumstances, as difficult as they may be, have been apportioned to you by the one who purchased you with his own blood and is ruling over you as head of his church. Wait. Is he saying that Christ is sovereign over this divorce? That's exactly what he's saying to the believing spouse who has been left behind. Paul says, in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of your pain and heartbreak and unanswered prayer, I want you to know that this situation has been assigned to you by Christ. Before you start planning the next step, before you start thinking about anything else, before you start reconstructing and replaying in your mind everything you could have done differently, bring yourself in humility to lay hold of this truth. Lay hold of it firmly and don't let go. But that's not all. He further explains what this means. He says, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned and to which God has called him. This calling refers to God's effectual calling. He has called us to himself in Jesus Christ. He's talking about conversion. 
And that means that not only have your circumstances been ordained by the Lord, but it is incumbent upon us to live the Christian life in that situation. Live in the light of your conversion, of your calling. And that means that while you submit to God's bitter providence and Christ's lordship over your life, you must also ask Him for grace and say, Lord, how do I honor you according to your word in this situation? Beloved, this is what Christian ambition looks like. This is what holy ambition ought to look like. Your desire should not be first and foremost, how can I change my circumstances, but how can I glorify God in this situation? If your unbelieving spouse has left you, yes, you might have a lot on your plate. Important things, practical needs even. But your greatest concern in this situation ought to be, how do I glorify Christ as a divorcee? When you lose your job, when you fall sick, when your travel plans fall apart, when you desire to marry but you're still single at 28, at 38, at 48, what should you do? Well, the wisdom of the world says you're not up to standard. You don't meet the mark. So change your situation. Go out there and get what you want. Nothing else matters. Nothing else counts other than your personal happiness and fulfillment. Think about what society might say. But the wisdom of the cross says, stay where you are. Stay where you are, O citizen of the new Jerusalem. Stay where you are. Look to Christ. Acknowledge His Lordship over your current condition and glorify Him. That's what counts. And that brings us to our second principle that ought to guide and inform our thinking. Here's the second theological principle, Christian obedience. And to help us understand how we ought to lead our lives, Paul gives us an example. Look at verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Paul asks, what was your state when you were born again? Were you a Jew and already circumcised when you became a Christian? See, in asking this question, Paul is bringing these two things together, our conversion and our condition at the time of our conversion. And he says, if you were circumcised, here's what you need to do about it. Nothing. Nothing. Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Some of you are, are, are thinking, how is that even possible? Remove the marks of your circumcision. Oh, there was a way. There was a very... There was a clever surgical way to do this, but I'll spare you the details. 
Josephus, the Jewish historian, talks about this. Sometimes Jewish athletes who wanted to compete in the Greco-Roman games would do this. Now, why in the world would they do this? Because you had to compete in the nude. You had to compete naked. And these Jewish athletes did not want to be laughed at. You see, the point of the games was to show off their fine-toned bodies. Even gymnasiums would be places where people would exercise and train naked. By the way, that's what that word in Greek means. Gumnos means naked. Gymnasion means to train naked. And this was entertainment in those days. Naked athletes and cheering crowds. The public worship of immodesty. But you have to understand that this was considered to be a big deal in that society. It was prestigious to compete in the games, and everyone wanted a shot at glory, to rise above the ranks, to be recognized, to have a name, a better social standing, to be an achiever. And Paul says, if you were circumcised, remain as you are. You're a Christian. Your chief aim ought to be to glorify God. And then he turns to the Gentile and he says, was anyone at the time of his conversion uncircumcised? Remember, there were Christians from both backgrounds at this church. And if you were uncircumcised, Paul says, don't seek circumcision. Now, why would someone want that? Well, when you read the book of Acts and Galatians, we come to realize that one of the biggest theological questions that the early church wrestled with was this, is it enough for a Gentile to be saved by faith in Christ alone, or do they need to be saved and keep the laws of the old covenant? And this was an important question with practical implications. One of the issues this raised in the believing community was the issue of table fellowship. Can a Jewish background believer and a Gentile background believer fellowship together? Or do the Gentiles have to be circumcised and eat the right foods and follow the ceremonial laws? And so you can imagine that it would have been tempting for some Gentile brothers to get themselves circumcised so that they could fit in with the rest. Or to appear truly spiritual by showing everyone that they were obeying the law. But Paul teaches us that the role of the law in redemptive history was temporary. He teaches us that in the book of Galatians. The law was meant to point us to Christ. And Jesus Christ, in His death and resurrection, has fulfilled the law and inaugurated the new covenant. You see, Jesus was faithful to the assignment that God the Father gave Him. Even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus died for the sins of His people and He rose from the dead to grant them new life. Colossians 2 verse 11 describes Jesus' death on the cross as the circumcision of Christ. Jesus was cut off. He bled. He died so that we could be spiritually circumcised or made alive by the Spirit. That's what the new birth is. It's a 
cutting away of the heart of stone and the giving or the bestowal of, of, of a heart of flesh, a heart that is now alive to God. Jesus died and rose for all who would repent and believe in him. And Romans 10 verse 4 says this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And that means we no longer look to the law for righteousness. We look to Christ. We look to his righteousness, which is credited to us by faith. It is a righteousness that comes by faith, by believing. And so Paul says this in Galatians 5, verses 2 to 6. He says, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You keep one command, you've got to keep it all. The old covenant is a unit. It holds together. You keep one command, you've got to keep it all. But what happens if you go down that road? What happens if you put yourself under the law now that Christ has come? Well, he tells us, if you do that, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith working through love. Of course, this does not mean that Christians are lawless. No, we are under, now under, the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is the law of love. Love that the Holy Spirit produces in us as we trust in the gospel. And so Romans 13.10 says that love is the fulfilling of the law. Do we obey the word of Christ? Yes, we do. But not by going to the law, but by trusting in the gospel, by being transformed by the love of Christ through His Spirit and loving one another. You see, Christian love envelops all that the law points to through the lens of the cross. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And Christian obedience is the fruit of that divine love. And this is why Paul tells the Corinthians to remain in the condition in which they were called. Remember that Christ is Lord over your situation. But also remember that in any condition, your priority is the obedience of faith. A faith working through love. Look at verses 19 and 20. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Beloved, remember that Paul is writing to people who wanted to change their circumstances. People who wanted to change their assignment, their condition, because they wanted a change in social standing, to rise up in society, to get a shot at glory, to fit in, perhaps even to appear more spiritual to others. And he says, remain in the condition in which you were called. You don't have to change your circumstances. In Galatians 6.15, he says, Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Perhaps some of you are, are thinking of changing your circumstances. 
I don't know why you want to do it, but I can tell you this. I can tell you this with confidence. Changing your life circumstances will not make you more pleasing to God. If that's your motivation, you need to think that through carefully. Now, friend, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, then let me tell you, whatever your goals in life are, whatever you hope to achieve or have achieved already will count for nothing when you stand before God on the day of judgment. Your only hope to be pleasing before God is to be found in His Son. So repent while there is yet time. Repent and put your trust in Jesus. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins and call on Him. Salvation is found in no other name but the name of Jesus. And beloved, you should also know this. Changing your life circumstances is not going to make you more spiritual. You see, this is the big idea in chapter 7. This is the big idea in chapter 7. Look at verse 8. If you are unmarried and widowed, what does he say? Remain single as I am. Look at verse 10. Remain married if a divorce happens. If a, uh, if a divorce happens, remain unmarried. Verse 12. If you have an unbelieving spouse, remain married to them. What the Lord expects of us is to acknowledge His Lordship over our lives and to ask ourselves, why do I want to do this? Are these God-honoring reasons? Or are they the wrong reasons? Am I doing something sinful? Or am I pleasing the Lord? Am I thinking just like the world? Or am I putting on the mind of Christ to see what would be most glorifying to my Savior? Brothers, this is the wisdom of the cross. And the Old Testament way of saying this is found in Proverbs 3.6. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. <clears throat> this doesn't mean that we choose what we want to do and then ask God to put His stamp of approval on our plans and decisions. No, it means that in all our undertakings, in all our conduct, the way we think, the way we reason, the way we feel, we acknowledge we recognize His Lordship and His authority. It is to ask the question, how do I choose and act in this situation so as to submit to the Word of Christ? How do I honor my King, the one who sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood? Because isn't that what counts in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 19? But beloved, I'm afraid we, so often we, we don't do what this passage tells us to do. To consider His Lordship and the obedience of faith before we consider anything else. Too often we pursue changes because of the very same reasons that the world does. A better lifestyle, better social standing, better prospects. And yet Paul tells us, remain. Stay and consider what faithfulness to Christ and the pursuit of holiness looks like in the place where God has already placed you. Beloved, I hope you will take some time this evening 
and think of past decisions and consider if you made them without pausing to think, will this glorify God? And if you didn't, I pray that you will repent and make wise decisions in the future. If you are in a, in a difficult place right now, consider why God has you there. Think about that. Consider what sort of lessons does He want you to learn. Ask Him. Go to Him in prayer and ask Him, Lord, what kind of lessons do you want me to learn in this hard situation? If you're in a difficult job with a difficult boss, don't leave just because you don't have job satisfaction. Don't leave just because you don't feel fulfilled. No, take yourself out of the center and consider first what it means to live like a believer and to glorify God in that situation. Ask yourself, how do I pursue patience? and self-control and contentment in this situation. That's what counts. Ask yourself, how do I deal with my anger and frustration and put on kindness instead? Because that's what counts. Ask yourself, how do I walk in wisdom towards outsiders making the best of time? Colossians 4, 5. Ask yourself, how can I give others the reason for the hope that is in me and yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when I am slandered, <coughs> those who revile my good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That's 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16. <coughs> Ask yourself that, because that's what counts. Ask yourself, how can I work for my difficult boss, not by way of eye service as a people pleaser, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord? How can I work heartily as for the Lord and not for men? That's Colossians 3, 22 to 23. Because that's what counts. Beloved, whatever station of life you're in right now, the Word of Christ has much to say to you. Consider His Lordship over your circumstances and consider what the obedience of faith looks like for you where you are and remain where you are and glorify Him. But also consider your identity as someone who is free in Christ. And that brings us to the third principle that ought to guide and inform our thinking. Here's the third theological principle. our identity in Christ. Look at verse 21. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. <clears throat> now, this is astonishing. Paul says, were you a slave when you came to Christ? Don't be concerned about it. Don't worry about it. Don't be troubled by the fact that you are a slave. How could he say that? Why aren't you concerned about abolishing slavery, Paul? 
Now friends, the slavery that is mentioned here is very different from pre-Civil War slavery in America. That's probably what you're most familiar with. Now this is talking about indentured servitude. That's why the ESV uses the word bond servant. It was common in those times for people to sell themselves into slavery to pay off their debts. The downside, of course, was that you would lose your freedom. You would lose your rights. And in ancient times, slavery was a mixed bag. It is true that some slaves were treated very badly and abused, but it was also the case that some were treated very well. It all depended, it all depended on who your master was, who your master was. Many slaves were administrators and managers and doctors and cooks. Slaves held all kinds of positions in the Greco-Roman society. Some slaves were even able to buy their freedom with the help of their masters. But here's why what Paul says is very striking. You see, in those days, getting out of slavery would have been seen as a good thing, an upgrade. Becoming free certainly meant you were moving up the ladder in society. And Paul says, don't be concerned about that. <clears throat> Imagine that. <clears throat> you know, that would be like Paul telling you, I know you earn a little, very little. I know you have an awful job. I know you don't have the kind of lifestyle your neighbors have. Yeah, don't be concerned about it. Are you feeling offended yet? Scandalized? Does it sound foolish? Paul says, don't be preoccupied with that. Why? Because he wants believers to pursue faithfulness where they are in whatever station the Lord has placed them in. Does this mean that Paul is teaching us that we should never change our circumstances, never change jobs? Should singles never contemplate getting married? Should a widow not consider getting married and changing her condition? Of course not. That's not what he's saying. We know, we know that because of the second half of verse 21. Look at the text. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. But that's not what he wants the Christian slave to be concerned with. Always troubled about. Now here's how he wants us to think. Here's why the slave need not be preoccupied with his freedom all the time. Look at verse 22. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Friends, we are a people who are so often confused about our identities. We are identity amnesiacs. Very often we tend to pin our identities on our work, our marital status, our spouses, our abilities, our social standing, ethnicity, caste, color of skin, motherhood, children, money, possessions. This is where we often look to find meaning, identity, and purpose, and happiness, and fulfillment. 
And sometimes these very things become the reasons why we will not obey the word of Christ. Beloved, your identity is that you are in Christ. You are a Christian. You are a member of the household of God. You are a citizen of the new Jerusalem. Your allegiance is to the risen and ascended and reigning King, the Lord Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. You are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Paul says, if you are a bondservant, remember this every day. In Jesus Christ, you are free. Free from the power of sin. Free from the penalty of sin. Free to follow Jesus. You have real freedom. Real freedom. And of the only kind that truly matters. The only kind that will mean anything when the king returns. Let that identity control and inform how you think about your life and how you make decisions. You want freedom from slavery? In the Lord's providence, if He provides you with an opportunity, great, take it. If not, be faithful where you are. This is not the first time He does this. He does the same thing in verse 8, doesn't He? Look at verse 8. He says in verse 8, It is good for the unmarried and widows to remain single, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. He doesn't want you to be preoccupied and consumed with changing your status, but on being faithful, on pursuing self-control and purity. And then he turns around. He turns around and he says to the Christian who is free, free in society. And he says, if you are free and not a bondservant, what should your chief aim be, Christian? What should you be preoccupied with? What should you remember? What should control and shape your thoughts every day? That you are a bondservant of Christ. You may be a freeman in society, but here's what really matters, that you serve Jesus Christ, your master. Why is that? Look at verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. See, Paul returns to that theme in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. You are not your own. You do not forget that, whether your decision is a small one or a life-changing one. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God. Do not become bondservants of men. What does he mean? He doesn't mean that you should never be employed. No, he means don't be slaves to men in a spiritual sense. Even as you stay where you are, remember that faithfulness requires you to say no to sin. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And beloved, you have an opportunity to do this wherever you are. Right where you are, you can thrive spiritually in whatever condition. Whatever employment, season of life you find yourself in, consider that this is the Lord's assignment. This is the Lord's assignment. God has called you to be a Christian, to remember your identity and walk in the obedience of faith, serving your master. This is God's charge to us. 
Look at verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. There let him remain with God. Friends, the point of this passage, listen very carefully. The point of this passage is not to vaccinate you against change. The point of this passage is not simply to remain, but what? Remain with God. I hope you can see that. Otherwise, this makes no sense. Oh, I was in school when I was converted. Should I stay in school? No, that's ridiculous. That's not the point. The point is to be a faithful Christian where you are, in whatever condition you are. That should be your priority. But brothers and sisters, some of us want change simply because we're discontent or covetous, impatient, given to lust and sensuality. To you, I would say, you're chasing after change for all the wrong reasons. You need to stay and lead the life that the Lord has assigned to you before clamoring after the next one. You know, sometimes I'll say to a single person in our church, and I've said this often, somebody who's interested in getting married, I'll tell them, you're not ready. I say that because of this text. Don't be concerned about getting married. Focus on leading the life that God has assigned to you because right now, here's what I see. These are the areas in your Christian life that I don't see faithfulness. But with the Lord's help, you can do what counts. With the Lord's help, you can do what counts. You can live faithfully and glorify God. Well, can I do those things later when I get married? No, you won't. You see, single you will be the married you. Faithfulness in your current assignment is required for faithfulness in the next, should the Lord give you one. Faithfulness in your current assignment is required for faithfulness in the next, should the Lord give you one. So can I look for a job? Sure. Can you pursue someone to marry? Sure. But what's the more pressing question that the Holy Spirit wants you to consider? Can you lead the life that the Lord has assigned to you and to which God has called you? Beloved, if you're praying about a particular opportunity that presents itself, before you think about what the pay and the perks of a job are, before you think about the joys of a, of a new relationship, it is your Christian duty, your obligation of love to consider in an attitude of worship, will I be able to do what really counts? Keeping His commandments. If you think like this, you won't marry an unbeliever. If you think like this, you won't pursue an unbiblical divorce. 
If you think like this, you won't take up a job that prevents you from your responsibilities to your family and from gathering with the saints and pursuing discipleship and fellowship. But having said that, let me also tell you this. Sometimes pursuing faithfulness will mean change. Did you get that? Sometimes pursuing faithfulness will require change. We know that. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. Or you might find yourself in a job that is not conducive to your growth in holiness or obedience. Think of an unbelieving spouse who leaves because they can't stand your Christianity. If change is on the horizon, then that is something you need to think carefully through. Talk to your elders. Seek wise counsel. But friends, the overwhelming desire that you ought to have should be to pursue faithfulness where you are. So brothers and sisters, remain with God. Remain with God. This is a high and lofty and honorable condition to be in. It is pleasing to Him as His servants glorify Him in whatever condition they are. Because when we do that, when we do that, we confess with our lives that it is not our station in life or our social status or lifestyle or the approval of culture that we live for. No, we don't live for that. We live for Jesus Christ. So yeah, you might be a nobody in the UAE. And when you're dead and gone, you probably won't go down in history books. But remember what Psalm 116 verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, who hope in His steadfast love. Beloved, He has bought us with a price, with the blood of His Son, our Savior. He is our Lord and Master. And in whatever station of life we might, we might find ourselves in, remember that you are serving Him. And it is from Him you will receive your reward. And to this end, to this end we ought to pray, His will be done. His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we go about our daily tasks, that our minds would be greatly preoccupied with pleasing you, with glorifying Christ, with demonstrating that Jesus rules over our hearts and it is to him and him alone we bow. Oh Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit that we might walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called and find our joy and contentment in you alone. Give us grace to do what really counts. Fulfill every resolve of faithful obedience by your power so that the name of Jesus may be glorified in and through our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.